Matthew 22, 1 to 14. I'll read the parable and then uh, I'll talk about it. You know how this preaching works. The parable of the wedding banquet. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, ill-treated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. He goes to Lanzarote and he gives me one of the most difficult passages to preach on. Thanks very much for nothing, Carl. Like, what you need to know, like, this is one of the most difficult passages to preach on from the entire Bible. It's the weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's the outer darkness. It's a passage about heaven and hell. What you need to know about me some of you do know, I'm a professional comedian, that's my career, I've done over 2,000 gigs. Not just that, I don't know if you're familiar with the, um, the five love languages, if some of you have heard of that. My love language is words of affirmation. I both give and receive love through encouraging words. I want people to like me, I want people to say nice things about me, I want people to agree with me. I'm also a comedian, so I have trained myself over 15 years of being a comedian, I've trained myself to say things that an audience will like. To say things that an audience will respond well to. And I know, because of the, the fact that I've done 2,000 gigs, I know when an audience is not warming to what I'm saying. You just need to know that I wouldn't have chosen to preach on this. <laughs> this, not, this is not my go-to passage. But we're talking about truth here. We're talking about the truth. And what you need to know is, like, there will be bits of this because there's bits of this passage that you, that you won't like. Some of you won't like. And there's bits of it that I might not like. But the job of a preacher is not the job of a comedian. I'm not trying to entertain you. The job of the preacher is to tell the truth. I've got to preach on what I think this actually says and what it actually means. And I also believe that actually by the end we'll be convinced that the gospel is still amazing and it's good news. Like it's really good news. But I just want to kind of let you know that, again, I'm not jubilant about talking about weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so it's okay, like, if you don't like all of this. It's okay if you don't like me, because it's not about me. This is about, this is about God. This is about truth. This is about people's eternal destiny. Is that okay? <laughs> yeah. 
Can you feel the tension in the air? I know I can. Three years ago today, three years ago today, I got baptized. I've been a Christian for um, 15 years, um, but I got baptized three years ago because I just decided that it was um, that it was time. Um, because baptism is, uh, and Josh is going to get baptized soon as well. Baptism is an, an, a public declaration, declaration of something that's happened inwardly. So baptism is a public declaration of an inward change. Uh, and so there's no magic ceremony about baptism. It's not that you go under the water and all of a sudden you're a Christian. You've already chosen to follow Jesus by the time you get baptized. But it's symbolic. And this passage as well is symbolic. Um, it's not a literal story. It's an analogy. It's a parable. Jesus uses that to talk about truth. Uh, this could be called, the passage could be called Choices Have Consequences. My preach from a few weeks ago was also called Choices Have Consequences, so I'll call it uh, something different. Uh, possibly shoot out at the R.K. Corral. I'm considering that, and you'll find out why later. But the book of Matthew, as we've talked about, is aimed primarily at convincing the Jewish nation that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And warning them not to reject him. Warning them about the consequences of rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. So a lot of, a lot of the book of Matthew is about warning the Jewish nation that their choices have consequences. And I want to say right at the start, this is really important. A consequence is not the same as a punishment. Consequence is not punishment. Consequence as I define it, as I think it's defined here, is the self-inflicted outcome of a choice that you have freely made. So a consequence is the self-inflicted outcome of a choice that you have freely made. So the difference between punishment and consequence might be summed up as this. Punishment is when the outcome is down to someone else's choice. So when someone punishes you, the outcome is, is about their choice. Whatever happens to you is, is their choice. It's inflicted on you. When a, with a consequence, the outcome of the situation is down to your choice. And the difference here, and this is what this passage is about, it's actually not about punishment. It seems to be on the surface to be about punishment. It's actually about consequence. So let's deal with the context first, and then we'll deal with the fact that this is really about heaven and hell. So the context of the, of, the, of the passage about the king sending all his messengers is about God having sent prophets to Israel to invite them into covenant with him. Covenant means relationship. So throughout the years and the decades and the eons, God had sent prophets to Israel to say, look, come and be in relationship. Come and be in covenant with me. And then it talks about the reality of the mistreatment of these prophets, these messengers had been killed, abused, ignored, mistreated. And if you listen to the parable, if you look at the parable, these messengers, they're not threatening violence. They're not there to threaten violence. They're not debt collectors. They're not bailiffs. They're inviting these people, they're inviting Israel to a feast, a party, a banquet. Not just snacks and dips. It's not like, hey, um, I'm here on behalf of the king, like... Do you, want to, do you want to come over? Like I've got a block of red Leicester and some celery and some crackers. Not even Jacob's crackers. It's Jacob's crackers from Aldi. They're gross, but like, do you want to fancy coming round? We don't really have much dip. I've done a special dip. When you say you've done a special dip, do you mean you've mixed ketchup and mayonnaise? Yes. 
That is exactly what I've done. Well, no, that looks like pus. I'm not coming to that. It's gross and you're gross. No, thank you. It's a banquet that they're being invited to. And yet they kill the messengers. They choose to kill the messengers. In the passage, it's really interesting. Jesus says, the king says, those I have invited don't deserve to come. That's really interesting. Those I have invited don't deserve to come. Now, he doesn't say, they don't deserve to come, so I won't invite them. He's already invited them. He wants them to be there. So what does it mean, they don't deserve to come? What are we talking about when we say they don't deserve to come? Because he's already invited them. He wants them there. What this comes down to is entitlement. This passage, this parable, is about the entitlement of the people who are being invited. The Jewish nation, the nation of Israel, believed that they were God's chosen people. And they were God's chosen people. But with that, they took upon it a sense of entitlement. Like, we don't have to do anything. We don't have to choose anything. We are the chosen. It's us. We've won the X factor. Just by being born where we are and when we are, we are the chosen. They had that real sense of entitlement. But they're missing the point. And that's what Jesus says at the end. Like that last sentence, many are called but few are chosen. We think about that like the X factor, like it's a boot camp. Like let's see, let's, everyone's auditioning. Everyone can come and audition and then I'll pick a few to go through to boot camp and they'll form a boy band and they'll do a, a number one album and then no one will know who they are in two years' time. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying there are a group of people who believe that they are chosen, are entitled. They believe that they are entitled to relationship with God. But actually, many are called. It's not just for them because everyone is invited. Does that make sense? It's not, come in and let's audition you and then I'll pick a few. No, I'm picking all of you. It just happens that there's a few of you who think that you are there just on right. And actually, you don't have a lot of rights when it comes to God's eyes. You have a right to become a child of God. That's your major right. And that's on offer. But you've got to say yes to that. And this is where it starts to look like good news because actually the king in this is not saying come based on your performance. You're not worthy, but you're worth it. I'm inviting you because you're worth it, not because you're worthy, not because of anything you've done or haven't done. Just come to the banquet. Grace means, the, the, Christ, the Christian idea of grace is a, a, a quite, it's quite a unique thing. Grace just means undeserved favour. Not as in doing someone a favour they don't deserve, but favour, preferential treatment that you haven't done anything to earn. That's what grace means. And this is the concept. The people I've invited don't deserve it, but I've invited them anyway, because that's what grace is. It's favour that people haven't asked for and people haven't earned. Grace means undeserved favour. Exactly right. As long as it's not Jacobs. <laughs> so you're not, you're not worthy, but you're worth it. But you've got to choose. You've got to choose 
to come to the banquet. And this is what the king's saying. Like, you, you've actually got to make it. It won't come to The banquet is not where you are. It's where he is. And you've actually got to come into that banquet. You've got to come into that relationship. You have to make the choice to come to the banquet. The party isn't where you are. It's where he is. For instance, Johnny Boston's here today. Where's Johnny Boston gone? If Johnny Boston said to me, Andy, next week I'm going to uh, Holland. There's a, a massive, uh, amazing clog-making festival. <laughs> and there's other stuff as well, but it's mainly clog-making festival. And like they, you know, they help you design your own clogs and they make it for you and you get to keep the clogs. And uh, I thought you'd like to come, so I've bought you a ticket. It's £5,000, but I've paid it for you. And I've got you this ancient, weird... Dutch native outfit for you to wear. Do you want to come? I, I would almost certainly say, no, thank you, John. I don't like clogs. I don't want to come to Clogfest 2019. I don't care if it is the best clog festival in the world. How many can there be, really? What I couldn't then do is enjoy the fullness of Clogfest. I wouldn't be there to enjoy the, the beauty of a, of a, of a five-day clog festival. And when John came back with his lovely pair of clogs on this floor as well, imagine that. And everyone was gathering around and saying, John, those are amazing clogs. Yeah, I got them from Clogfest 2019. It was amazing. Probably the best time of my life. Better even than getting married to Maria. He's, I'm just imagining this is what he's going to say. You don't understand how good Clogfest is, though. You don't understand. I might then feel incredibly jealous about missing out on Clogfest. But what I couldn't say is say, what I couldn't do is say, well, that's not fair. I wanted to go to Clogfest. Because actually I had the opportunity. John paid £5,000 for my ticket. Thank you, John. I appreciate that. I will go next year. The consequence is a result of my choice. I am free not to go to Clogfest. <laughs> I spent a bit longer than I expected talking about Clogfest. <laughs> but I don't regret it. And I'll take the consequence of that. You're not going to Clogfest. So here, what's also good here is that there's um, this banquet. There's not, there's not limited space. The king says, go and invite anyone. Anyone who will come, bring them in. Anyone who will come. This is unlike my wedding. Um, <laughs> when, I, uh, when I got married, uh, we... Uh, we were so excited, we didn't know what a wedding would cost. <laughs> we didn't know how expensive weddings were, so we invited uh, everyone. I don't just mean everyone we were close to, I mean everybody. Like people in the middle aisle at Aldi, I invited them. Uh, I had an old uh, school teacher called Mrs. Jones, I invited her. Um, Twitter, I invited Twitter at one point. Like Everybody on Twitter. Chris Akabusi RSVP'd, that's how exciting it was. Honestly, we had... We had room, we had, we had money for about 100 people and we'd invited about 200 people. And what that meant was that we, start, we, we were forced to come to a position where we started to get excited when people dropped out. Like, we loved it when people became ill and couldn't come. Like, one of my best mates ran me up, his girlfriend of three years had, um, had dumped him. And, uh, and that meant that she wouldn't be able to be, he wouldn't be bringing a plus one to the wedding. He was absolutely devastated. I was so excited. I was like, yes, come on! I mean, I'm sorry for your loss, but this is brilliant. That saved me 25 quid. 
That's not what's happening here. This is not about limited space. The king is inviting everyone. Everyone is invited. Everyone is welcome. Come to the banquet. So already that's sounding better than it seems on first reading. The superficial reading is not as bad as it seems. However, we're not out of the woods yet, friends. Because it's still the case. The king is saying, and Jesus is saying, it's still the case that there will be people who aren't at the banquet. There will be people who are not at the banquet. There will be people who are outside in the dark. There will be people who are expecting to be in the banquet, who are outside in the dark. People who thought they were chosen, who had a sense of entitlement, they will be outside. And here we are, face to face, facing down the concept of heaven and hell. At this point, we need to take a deep breath. We need to relax. We need to understand that the words heaven and hell have been so overloaded with imagery. Like, so overloaded with imagery, most of which is false. So what I want to do is to try and strip away the words heaven and hell and talk about them in different terms. But yes, we are facing now the concept of heaven and hell. This is what we're going to talk about. I asked, um, I asked Twitter again, actually, uh, not inviting them to a wedding this time. But I, I wanted to get an idea of what people thought when I said heaven, what, what people thought when I said hell. So I just asked Twitter, heaven is and hell is. And I texted some people as well. Just fill in the blanks. Heaven is, hell is. And this is some of the... These are some of the responses I had. So first of all, heaven is fluffy white clouds. That was one. Uh, eternal bliss. Fair enough. Harps. Someone just put harps. Heaven is harps. Heaven is free childcare. <laughs> heaven is an all expenses paid clog making festival. These are, these are anonymous, by the way. Uh, and then hell. Hell is where bad people go, devils with pointy forks, a lack of free childcare. That was the same woman. She was tired. She's a, a mum of three, but she was tired when I asked her. <laughs> Hell is um, finding a tub of ice cream in the freezer and opening it to discover that it's frozen soup. That was, that was one. <laughs> That's mine, actually. This is my favourite one. Um, this like, of all the things that hell could be, someone put, hell is um, walking down a long corridor with someone you know coming the other way and working out how to time your, hey, how you doing greeting. Like, that's just, why is that the thing? In the film, um, Jay, have you got the, the pictures? There's a film called High Plains Drifter. And that's Clint Eastwood. And in the film High Plains Drifter, uh, a nameless stranger, he's called, we know he's Clint Eastwood, but he plays a nameless stranger in the film. He, he comes and he, um, he brings justice to a group of murderers, essentially. It's quite a spooky film, but he brings justice to a, a group of murderers. And what he does, he gets all the townspeople to um, paint the town red. And then, have you got the next slide? And then they change the name of the town from Largo to Hell. So when, when the bandits turn up, it says, 
Welcome to hell, boys. And interestingly, there is a banquet prepared for them. <laughs> They've put out tables as though it's a banquet, but then he kills them all because he's Clint Eastwood. <laughs> Thanks, Jay. But that, that is quite a, a, a common conception of what hell is. It's like, it's red. It's a red, it's red and it's fiery and, it, and it's scary. And there's bandits there. Certainly, for most people, when we hear the words heaven and hell, heaven seems overly sanitized. The idea of heaven, harps and angels, it seems overly sanitized. And it seems dreamy, but in a, like a really boring way. And hell seems just, frankly, brutally unfair. The concept of hell to most people seems brutally unfair. A place of fire where God sends people to be punished. I want to suggest because I think it's the biblical idea that hell is neither fiery or a place where God sends anyone to be punished. The sending and the punishment, I think, are false concepts. We don't know, and this is where we need some nuance, we don't know what heaven is and what hell is. The Bible is not clear on what heaven is and what hell is. We need nuance because it doesn't mean that it doesn't say anything. The Bible does say plenty of stuff about consequences, plenty of stuff about choices having consequences. But when people say, oh, the Bible is clear that hell is a, a lake of fire, no, I'm sorry, it's not actually. The Bible is not clear. It might be that, but it's not clear, and I think deliberately unclear. The Bible is not clear exactly what heaven is and exactly what hell is. It doesn't mean it doesn't say anything. So instead of heaven and hell as overly loaded terms, can we think about this? Instead of heaven, can we talk about the presence of God? And instead of hell, can we talk about the absence of God? I think those are the best descriptions of what heaven and hell actually are about at their foundation. Heaven is the presence of God. Hell is the absence of God. And you see, that's where the Bible is clear. The Bible is clear that there is a loving God inviting you into his presence. Psalm 16 or Psalm 18 verse 11 says, In his presence is fullness of joy. Fullness of joy exists and it's in his presence. The Bible is clear about that. The Bible is also clear that there are people who are rejecting that offer. There are people who will reject the offer of God's presence. And the consequences of that choice are horrendous. The consequences of that choice will be horrendous. And I don't like it and you don't like it, but I think the Bible says that that is the case. And see, that's, that's the problem, particularly for a non-believer. For a non-believer, someone calls himself an atheist or just a, a non-believer, that idea seems to massively undermine, undercut and deny the idea of a God of love. The idea that there is a place of horror separate from God, that God will allow people to be in a place of horror, of torment, separate from him, that seems, that seems very difficult and that seems to undermine the Christian idea of a God of love. Um, so let's deal with that. Let's hit it head on. 
Within the Christian worldview, there are, there are, three, there are three schools of thought on uh, what hell is, uh, what judgment is, what happens after death. The, the first school of thought is universalism. Um, by the way, of these three, only one of them is a problem if you're an unbeliever. Of the three potential things that happen after death in terms of judgment and consequences, only one of them is a problem if you're an unbeliever. The first one is universalism. Universalism is the idea, Christian universalism, is the idea that because of the cross of Christ, ultimately everybody will be saved. That's what it means for every knee to bow and every tongue to confess. Because of the cross of Christ, everybody will be saved. That's universalism. Even people who reject it will somehow find themselves at the banquet. Now, that is the minority view, and I don't think Scripture talks about that. I hope it is true. Of course I do. Of course I hope that's true. And on that one, like if you're a non-believer, if you're an atheist, on that you get way more than you're expecting. Because you're expecting extinction, actually you get a heavenly banquet for eternity. So on that one, it's way better. Even rejecting Jesus is way better than you thought it was. The second view, the middle view, is called annihilationism. Annihilationism is the idea that you are allowed to reject the presence of God and he won't force you into his presence because love can't be given under duress. But because he loves you so much, he would not force you to have an eternity separate from him. He, he loves you so much, he, would not, he knows the consequences of your choices, but he would not force you to be in eternity without him. And so you will just cease to be, you'll cease to exist. Now, personally, that's my view. I know that's Carl's view as well. We're not saying we're definitely right, but we would go for annihilationism, the idea that you can reject Jesus, and at the moment where you cease to be, you will know at that moment what you've missed out on. You will know that you're missing out on that banquet. So it's not good news for you, but at least you get what you expect on that. You get what you hope for. You hope for extinction if you're an atheist and you get it. The only view that's a problem, the big view, is the view called uh, ECT, eternal conscious torment. Torment doesn't mean punishment. It's not devils with forks. But this is the only view that's a problem for you if you're an atheist. And so let's just assume, let's just assume that that's true. For now, let's assume that that is the case. That for those people who reject the offer of Jesus, the consequence is eternal separation from him. That sounds bad and is bad if it's true. One thing to say, like, it's not just Christians who are the party poopers here, by the way. Like, if I'm a Christian believing in eternal conscious torment and you're an atheist, like, we are both downgrading each other's expectations of what happens after death. So you're expecting extinction, and I'm saying, no, sorry, mate, much worse than that, you're going to go on forever with the absence of God. But you're saying to me, sorry, mate, you're expecting eternal bliss forever, and actually you get instant extinction. So both of us are downgrading each other's expectations. It's not just Christians who are party pooping, but it's still pretty bad. So how can we talk about good news? Christians use the phrase good news all the time. Gospel means good news. How can we talk about good news when people might be eternally separated from God? How can we talk about good news when people might be eternally separated from God? Now that bit obviously isn't the good news. That's not the good news. 
But the Christian story is good news in context. Because good news is only good in context to the other news being bad. The Christian story is good news in context compared to all the other options out there. The Christian idea of hell, even if it is eternal conscious torment, it's the shadow side, it's the consequence of rejecting what is still the best option and the best story out there. Let me explain what I mean by that. The good news of the gospel is in the nature of the fact that it's an invitation. The good news is in the nature of God's character and the fact that he is inviting you to a banquet. There is an invitation. There is a choice for you to make. And there are consequences, but the consequences will be as a result of the choice that you have freely made and are allowed to make. With every other religion, every other religion. Now, the concept of God is not the same on every religion, like God is not the same in every religion. But generally speaking, in every other religion, when you die and you come face to face with God, God will say to you, the concept of God will say to you, let's see how you did. Let's see how well or how badly you did. There's no invitation there. That's not an invitation into relationship. That is an appraisal, a disciplinary hearing, a court-martial. And if you don't pass, you're punished. That's punishment. You have no choice. It will be decided if you've done well enough, and if not, you will be punished, and you won't have a choice in the matter. Every other religion, every other worldview, that's bad news. If you come face to face with Jesus, when you come face to face with Jesus, he won't say to you, let's see how well or badly you did. He will just say to you, who do you say that I am? Who am I to you? Who's the king? He'll say, who's the king? And at that point, you will have a choice and you will say one of two things. You will say, you're the, you're the king, Jesus. You're the king of the universe. You're the king of my life. I want to come into the banquet and I want to be in your kingdom. I accept there can only be one king. There can only be one king in your kingdom and I'm prepared to bow the knee to confess that you are the king. I want to come in. I want to have that fullness of joy that you offer in your presence. And he'll say, let's get something to eat. Or you will say, sorry, mate, I'm the king. I'm the king of my life, Jesus. I'm the king, not you. I have control of my life. I am in charge. And at that point, Jesus will say to you, very well, your majesty, your will be done. And he will leave your kingdom. And this is where the Christian view of hell, even if it's eternal conscious torment, can still be seen as good news for people who don't want Jesus. Because you will get your kingdom. 
and you will get to keep it forever. You can keep your crown forever. The problem is this, and this is where the weeping and the gnashing of teeth comes in. When Jesus goes, other stuff goes as well. The Christian view is that Jesus Christ is not the allocator of love and hope and joy and peace and purpose. He's not the allocator of these things. He is the source of these things. He does not assign love and joy and hope and peace. He is them. And when he goes, they go as well. He is the source of love and light and life. And when you say, leave my kingdom because I'm the king, he will say, very well, your majesty, your will be done. And he will go. But love and light and life will go with him. If you turn your back on love, you will get disconnection. If you turn your back on life, you will get death. You turn your back on light, you get darkness. You turn your back on joy, you get despair. You turn your back on hope, you get futility. That sounds a lot like hell to me. Jesus is the source of these things and he will leave you alone to be the king or the queen of your own life forever. But you can't keep the things that are his because they're not just gifts, they're, they're aspects of his nature. He is love, joy, hope, peace, light, life. And when he's not there, those things aren't there either. You get... Death, destruction, despair, desolation, darkness. But that's the consequence. You see, that's the difference. It's not, there's no punishment there. He's actually treating you like the king that you want to be. People say, God wouldn't, I'm not a Christian, I don't, be, I don't believe, but you know, I've come to my conclusion, you know, honestly, and God wouldn't punish me for not believing in him. 100% agree. 100% agree. But there isn't a place where you can be and go and be happy where he isn't. That heaven is not centre parks. There isn't a place that God can send you to be happy where he isn't. Because he is those things. He is the source of those things. Like, you understand what these terms mean. You understand love and joy and hope and peace because we are in God's world. It's as though we're in the lobby to the banqueting hall. We're in the lobby and we can smell the food of the banqueting hall. And we can also feel the cold air of the darkness. And we just have to choose where we're going. Are we going inside or are we going outside? It's our choice. But you experience these things, the positive things, the joy and the gladness and the happiness and the hope because you're in a world which God sustains. Jesus Christ sustains all things by his powerful word. That's why we experience these things. But there will come a point where you will have to choose yes or no. You'll have to choose to come and eat with him or to go out into the dark. And then there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and it will be a consequence and not a punishment. So what will you choose? Will you choose presence or will you choose absence? And you know what? It's, it's good news because uh, 
No other God, no other God is offering you his presence. No other God is offering you fullness of joy. No other God is offering you a free banquet. As you know, some of you, I'm doing this tour show at the moment called Hidden in Plain Sight. It's the idea that um, we don't need to kind of look at biblical inerrancy or the existence of miracles to work out whether God exists. We can just look at the things that we do know to be true, that we love unconditionally, we want to be free, we want purpose. There's certain things that are hidden in plain sight and they point us, they are signposts to something. And the conclusion of the show is actually... Those things only make sense if Jesus is true. And so I was doing this uh, show in, in Bath, and it was a really good show, and this guy came up to me, um, a practicing Buddhist guy, really nice. He'd had, he'd had a few drinks, and he came up to me in the bar afterwards. He said, mate, I love the show. I just didn't like the bit at the end where you talked about Jesus being the only way. I said, well, I didn't actually say that Jesus was the only way. I said that Jesus is the only one who makes sense of what you know to be true about yourself. It's a no, no, no. You see, because I, I think that's really exclusive. I think there's many ways to the Lord. I said, great. Who is this Lord? Tell me who this Lord is. Tell me about him. What is he like? He said, oh, yeah, no, great. He's uh, love and, and, and joy and, uh, and, and, and you know, uh, peace. I said, great. The problem is, my friend, I said, you're a practicing Buddhist, like, that isn't the God that Buddhism talks about. There is no God on Buddhism. Buddha was a man who was an agnostic. He, wasn't, he didn't believe in God. This, Buddhism doesn't talk about a God of love. I said, to, I said to my friend, I can't remember, let's call him Charlie. I don't know what his actual name is. I said, Charlie, like, I'm not saying that you are wrong. Like, you are right. The things you believe about yourself, the things you desire, are right. It's not you that's wrong, it's your worldview that's wrong. Because your worldview doesn't agree with you. He said, yes, it does. I said, no, no, you agree with yourself, but we all agree with ourselves. Your worldview doesn't allow for a God who is love and joy and hope. Mine does. My worldview does. He said, no, but come on. He said, what about compassion? He honestly said, what about compassion? I said, exactly proving the conclusion of the show. I said, do you know what compassion means? He said, no. I said, compassion comes from two words, com and passion. Com means with, and passion means to suffer. To suffer with. There is one story out there of a God who would suffer with you. It doesn't exist on Buddhism. It doesn't exist in Islam. It doesn't exist in Hinduism. The Jedis don't believe in it. You believe in compassion because that's what it means to be made in the image of God who's wired that into you. There's one God who says he will suffer with you and suffer for you. And guess what his name is? Jesus. <laughs> These things are signposts. These things that we know to be true, they are signposts. They are signposts to a banquet which is free. But you've got to choose to come to it. I told you that um, we're very nearly finished now. I told you that Three years ago today, I got baptised, and um, I, didn't, I was worried because I didn't really feel like I'd had a testimony to share. You've got to share testimony at, um, at baptisms. And I'd always believed in God. I'd never been an atheist. I'd always believed there was someone out there bigger than me. Um, being raised in the 90s, I assumed it was probably Pavarotti, but I, 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 knew, I knew there was someone out there bigger than me. Um, and so I was worried I didn't have this great testimony to share. And then the night before my baptism, um, I started realising that actually maybe I did have stuff to share because it might surprise you to, to know that like I 
alienated all of my friends from school and all of my friends from university in two separate uh, attacks by being incredibly aggressive, incredibly self-destructive, a massive loose cannon. And I'm not like that now. And so something has changed. And it's not, I realise, it's not that I had suddenly stopped being a bad person and become a good person. What changed was that someone came to invite me to a banquet and I said, yes, please. I'd like to go to that. And then the reason I wanted to interview Josh is just to kind of lay the ground for the idea of dreams. I, I, I think, Josh, you will have a lot more prophetic dreams. I've only ever had one. It was the night before my baptism. And the point of telling you this, I've never told, I actually didn't tell this at the baptism because it got me too emotional. I'm going to tell you now. And the point is not to say that because I had this dream, therefore God exists. Like you can still dismiss like the idea that I had the dream. You can still believe that the dream was just in my imagination. That's fine. But the dream demonstrated to me what God had done in my life and is also essentially the message of the gospel. And in this dream, I was in the Wild West. I was in the Wild West. And I woke up. The dream started. I was on this sort of wooden gangway. And I was surrounded by a posse. I was surrounded by a posse. And one of them uh, was uh, the actor Bradley Cooper. Do you know him? Very attractive man. Very attractive. But in the dream... He wasn't called Bradley Cooper, he was called Lust. And the rest of the posse, I didn't see their faces, but they had names like Pride and Fear and Anger. And one of them said to me, we're not going to hurt you, we don't want to hurt you, just, just, mate, just do what we say and we'll have a nice time together. And they sounded great, but I knew I was trapped, I knew I was trapped. And on the other side of the, of the path was the, the townsfolk. And they were looking at me from the other side of the road. And some of them were looking sympathetic. Some of them were looking uh, disgruntled. Some of them were looking critical. But no one was offering to help. No one was coming across the road to help. And then in the dream, <coughs> Clint Eastwood turned up. I just watched the film High Plains Drifter. That's, what I wanted to, that's why I used that analogy. And again, this is happening in my imagination, but it's the truth of the gospel. This stranger turned up, just came riding into town and came straight over to the posse. And I could see in the dream that the posse were starting to get unnerved. And I didn't know why, because the, the stranger didn't have any weapons. He wasn't carrying a gun. And he came up to the posse and he said, I'm here for him, pointing at me. And in the dream, I mean, I obviously know who it is. In my conscious thought, I obviously would have known who it was. In the dream... I didn't know who it was. And I was very, throughout this dream, I was just very matter-of-fact about the whole thing. I said, um, he said, I'm here for him. I said, I'm sorry, mate, I don't know who you are. And the stranger looked at me and said, no, but I know you. He said, do you want to come with me? And I said, I said, I don't know who you are. Yes, please. I didn't know who he was, and I said, yes. And at this point, the posse lost it. Bradley Cooper lost it. And they got their guns out and they just started shooting and there was smoke everywhere. There, just, there was smoke and dust kicked up. And I thought, oh no, this poor guy is not armed. And then, and then when the smoke cleared, to my surprise, I saw that Bradley Cooper and all the rest of the posse were tied up on the floor. 
They were just on the floor, tied up, alive but immobile. And the stranger was standing up, but he was riddled with bullets. Riddled with bullets, bleeding profusely. And I went up to him, and again, in a very matter-of-fact way, I said, Do you? you're bleeding pretty badly there, mate. And he said, it's okay. By my wounds, you are healed. And I didn't know what he meant. I didn't know what he meant. But as I walked away, with the posse tied up, with anger and lust and pride and fear tied up. When he said, by my wounds you are healed, I didn't know what he meant. But as I walked away, I knew that he was telling the truth because I knew that I was free. If I got a bit emotional, it's just because it's a very vivid dream and it, it comes back. And it's, not, it's the first time I've told it. I knew that I was free. You might think, you might want to believe that there are many ways to God. I'm not sorry to tell you that there are not. There are not many ways to God. If you believe that, you are wrong. There are not many ways to God and nor would you want there to be. You do not want a God who meets you at the end of a very difficult life of struggle and suffering and says, right, let's see how you did. Let's see how well or badly you did. And there might be punishment coming. You don't want that way to God. You want a God who is willing to come and find you where you are. You want a God who will meet you at the end of your life your life of struggle and difficulty and say to you, the food's ready. Do you want to get something to eat? Come with me. That's the God that you want. And the good news is that that's the only God that there is. That's why we call it the gospel. When Christians say, when it says in Acts, there is no other name given under heaven by which man can be saved. We're not being arrogant because nobody else is offering to save you. Nobody else is offering to take on the powers and principalities arrayed against you and bring you freedom. Nobody else. Just one. When Jesus says, no one gets to the Father but through me, he's not being arrogant because no one else is offering you a way to the Father. No one is offering you a way to the presence of God where joy is in its fullness. Just him. Jesus is king. There are not many ways to God. There's one. His name is Jesus and he's the king. And you need to let him be the king. You cannot become everybody, you cannot become everything that you were born to be, everything that you hope to be, everything that you desire... You cannot be that person without letting him be who he is. You cannot have what you want until you let him be who he is. Jesus is the king. So the question is, will you choose the presence of God? Or will you choose the absence of it? 
Because the choice is the choice you're making now. Some of you are already experiencing the absence of God in your life and you feel it. And some of you have the presence of God in your life and you know it. This is not about what happens when you die. This is about making a choice that starts now and goes on forever. What are the, what's the posse in your life? What are the things that are keeping you trapped? There's a new sheriff in town. He's here for the good, the bad, the ugly. He's here to set you free today. But you've got to choose it. You've got to let him be the king. Will you let him be the king? The king of your heart, the king of your mind, the king of your life. Because the choice is yours. Amen.